Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. What will be the permanent changes COVID-19 has on higher education development? Dennis and I talk about his predictions regarding June 30th changes, permanent online shifts, and the ethical nature of making a move during quarantine. The good news is, Dennis says the demand for good fundraisers will only increase as we enter what Dennis calls a new golden age of philanthropy. Dennis Barden is a senior partner at Witt Kiefer. With 40 years of leadership and recruiting experience, Dennis Barden is one of the most respected and accomplished consultants in the field of higher education executive search. Deeply immersed in the marketplace dynamics impacting colleges and universities, Dennis's reputation as a truth teller derives from his direct style and his strategic orientation. Before joining Witt Kiefer in 1998, he spent 20 years in increasingly responsible leadership roles at his alma mater, St. Lawrence University, as well as with Northwestern and Georgetown Universities and the University of Chicago. Dennis is a recognized thought leader in higher education search and contributes regularly to such publications as the Chronicle of Higher Education and Case Currents. Dennis works from offices in Chicago and Sarasota, Florida. Let's get started. Dennis, thank you for joining us. I'm pleased to be here, Catherine. Thank you for asking me. Well, I'm excited to talk today about your perspective on moves during COVID-19 and quarantine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it was, you know, uh, it, it's one of the ways I think in which uh, life will be changed forever. Uh, I, I, I have been a road warrior for 40 years, both as a development officer and as a Yeah. On Friday, I just completed eight uh, weeks of not traveling, which is the longest I have gone without traveling in all of my professional life. And, and that, has, uh, that has changed really quite profoundly, and I believe will be one of the permanent changes that happens in the business. But yeah, so I'm, I'm a road warrior. I run around the country uh, helping colleges and universities find presidents, provosts, deans, and particularly vice presidents for advancement. Uh, and I work uh, across the entirety of the marketplace, large and small institutions, public and private, coast to coast. Uh, I have worked in almost all of the 50 states. I'm curious about what you look for in a vice president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I sure. wonder if there are common threads among them. Yeah, there are. We try to understand what our institutions need, particularly in the mix between the, the chief fundraiser and the leader. On the leadership side, we also try to understand what the institution needs in bet what, between what is leadership and what is management, and those are two different things. Mm -hmm. And so we try to understand what our needs, because what they want is not always what they need. And working in that, that critical strategic gap between what a client can articulate to you it, it wants and what you perceive it needs is really that, that's really critical. Um, of course, we're looking for productivity. Of course, we're looking for people who have been in successful programs. Beyond that, speaking for myself, uh, I'm looking for someone that I believe has the capacity to stay and to persist in the job. How do I know that? Because they've done it before. When we're looking for vice presidents, we're not looking for people who are in the first five years of their career. So we're looking for people who have spent five years somewhere. And five years is my usual line of demarcation. I like to see that somebody's been at an institution, even if it's in multiple jobs, for five years or more at some point. That's a win for me. Frankly, I care how someone learned that job. 
I like to know who taught them. I like to know who their mentors are or where they sought education. Did they do it from conferences or reading or mentorship or experientially some combination thereof? I'm looking for that as well. And then the hard part of all of this, particularly in higher education, which is a highly empirical environment, right? Faculty members in particular like to be able to add things up. They love forms that you can fill out and you can put numbers on them. And then if those numbers add up to a certain amount, then that's a good thing. And they love the empiricism of all of this. But the fact of the matter is leadership kind of doesn't work that way. Leadership is more visceral. Leadership has to be experienced. And so one of the things that we bring to the table is we've got a pretty, pretty good radar about what is leadership and, and can bring that to the table to help our clients make good decisions. Sounds like a recipe. It's a little bit of a recipe, but it's one of those recipes that, uh, that the chef adds a little pinch of this and a little stir of that. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> it's not really a written down on paper kind of recipe. Yeah. Well, you started telling us about how you've traveled the least you have in the last eight weeks over the past 40 years. What else has changed in the last nine to 10 weeks? Yeah, well, obviously methodologies have changed and just as is the case with classroom teaching, we've taken everything online. I'm literally in the middle of recruiting candidates for a presidential search right now where I have never set foot on campus. That's never happened before. So that's a new one. Now we've made extensive use of technology. And the irony is, frankly, we experienced more engagement, more participation. We gathered more input through the use of technology on this search than we would have gotten if we had gone to the campus. But the crowds, the, the people who attended our open fora and that sort of thing were significantly larger than they would have otherwise been. And so we actually have a lot more information than we would usually go on. So there are certain ironies to this. And in, in, in other words, we have better information on that search than if we had done our standard methodology, except that we've never experienced the campus. So what's an example of better information? We just heard from more people. See, when you start oh, up, search, when you start up a search, you just start asking everybody basically two simple questions. What's the agenda for the next person in this job? What does this person have to do in order for mm -hmm. you all to be successful? And how do you describe the best person to do that? So it sounds like the institutions you're working with then are not on hiring freezes right now. I believe that our search work for advancement leadership and enrollment leadership will continue fairly robustly simply because those are the areas of administration that generate revenue. They're the hardest people to find and they're going to be the most locked down by their current institutions for the foreseeable future. And so they're going to be hard to come up with. And as always, I believe boards will turn to people like us to help them find presidents. So are the positions that you're searching for ones that were open before COVID or are people moving right now? People are moving. Most of what we're doing now are searches that began before the COVID-19 crisis, but we are still opening searches. Now, they, they, again, they, they resemble that, uh, that marketplace that I just described, presidents, enrollment officers, advancement officers, that sort of thing. But searches are going on. The $64,000 question, of course, is will people move? Can you generate uh, candidates for these searches? 
And we were very concerned about that until about two weeks ago. And we jumped into the marketplace with this presidential search that I mentioned where I hadn't been on the campus. And we, we, we finished the due diligence. We wrote the documents. Everybody was really pleased with what we had. And we just dove into the marketplace very aggressively about two weeks ago. And the initial reaction has been very positive. So I, it's very affirming. We, we, so we do believe that people will continue to see the future in the longer term uh, and that people will respond to recruitment. Well, and development work is all long-term, especially with us coming up on a new fiscal year. Well, what's going to happen, I think is going to be really interesting is, you know, we are coming up on a new fiscal year and what in our world, when a new fiscal year portends is the conclusion of a significant number of capital campaigns. Well, when capital campaigns conclude, that is when talent becomes available. And so folks like us are looking to those campaigns and to the staffs of those campaigns to generate the next generation of leadership for other campaigns at other institutions. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens around June 30 when these campaigns conclude, you know, without benefit of, uh, you know, big campus celebrations. And yeah. It's going to be interesting. It, 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 it may change the dynamic a little bit, but believe me, uh, folks like me still know when those campaigns happen. You're watching. We are. We, we basically monitor three things reasonably closely. When campaigns end, when presidents turnover, and when kids graduate from high school. Those are when people get ready to make moves into senior leadership positions. Makes a lot of sense. So, of course, all of the interviewing is happening virtually. We know that. But what have your observations been in terms of what's similar and what's different for that process? Yeah, well, I think that the technological interviewing thing is turning out to be remarkably similar to the real thing. The, the discount, if you will, that has to be taken for candidate assessment for online interview has become almost close to zero uh, as, as we become more and more accustomed to Zoom. Uh, we're also able to help both our committees and our candidates to, to optimize the environment with some pretty simple little production values, like, you know, make sure you're lit for example, to do that. So, uh, and can be seen from the torso up so we can see your hands, not just your face, you know, those sorts of things. So, so we're able to narrow the gap, if you will. And if you take it from a cost benefit analysis, it's, it's a no brainer. So one of my clients, and this was an advancement search, but the, this particular HR professional is responsible for recruitment across the entire institution, not just advancement. And he told us last week, the average airport interview, the average interview process for semifinalists for his institution cost $25,000. And Whoa. last week, last week we did airport interviews for their vice chancellor for advancement and they cost $0. So you tell me whether that institution will ever do an airport interview again. Yeah, it sounds like this is something that's going to stay. Well, I don't, I, yes, I, I think it is. I, I do not think we will see that kind of traditional semifinal big search committee airport interview group kind of thing happen again in live and in person ever except for presidents. That's a big change. It's a huge change. It's, it's a good change. It's a, it's a, it's a everybody wins change. If, if you assume that 
the clients will adjust to the methodology and the candidates will adjust to the methodology. Number one, you're saving an enormous amount of money, but you're also saving an enormous amount of time. Remember, when we ask a candidate to fly somewhere and do a 90-minute interview, we're asking that candidate for an, an entire working day. Mm-hmm. If we do it on video, we're asking that candidate for 90 minutes. There's an enormous difference. It does beg the question, though, I mean, I see how it's good for the employer, but for the person that's applying, how do they know they like the campus? How do they know they can see themselves living there? That's kind of a big ask on the other side, don't you think? Yeah, it is. And it, and it is, it's a huge ask and it, uh, and it requires energy on the part of the candidate. It's going to require a lot more research, do a lot more due diligence uh, because it's entirely possible, especially in the near future. I don't think this will happen in the longer term. In the longer term, we'll still be in an environment where finalists, final candidates, you know, three, two, three, four final candidates will visit the campus. But in the short term, it's probably going to be one, probably going to be the candidate of choice. and It's going to be a very highly controlled visit. And there's going to be a certain leap of faith involved. And the more effort that the candidates put into this, uh, the better it will go. And to be perfectly frank, Catherine, it's a problem for advancement candidates because they tend to be the laziest candidates that we have. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In what sense? They respond when they get around to it. They take your calls when they get them. They do or they do not provide materials on time. Uh, advancement's about the only search we do where we can't afford to, to require a cover letter because we can't get advancement officers to write them. Advancement officers come into searches, change their mind, and, and withdraw. They get an offer, and they turn it down. Advancement candidates are basically just really horrible candidates. Well, don't hold it against us. We can't afford to. That's the thing. That's, that's, that's why advancement officers can act that way, because there are so few good ones that we don't have any choice. We can't hold a grudge. We can't, you know, we might think you're a jerk, but you're a jerk that we need to have go work for our client. <laughs> so do you think that, you know, you were talking about staying power in the magic five years, and we know that in our field, that's something that we struggle with, of staying for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is purely a prediction. Do you think these moves sight unseen will impact how long people stay into the future? I do. I do think it will have an impact and I do think it will make those I think it will make those times marginally lower from a, from a nationwide average perspective. I actually think it, it it won't actually lower to the mean. What it'll mean is there'll still be a a, a significant number of people who will go and stay at their institutions, but there will be this margin of people who don't. And and those tenures will be very short, 18 to 36 months, basically. And and then you'll see, then you'll see people move and, and, and we'll probably over the course of the next three years, see a small spate of that simply because, you know, moving from downtown Manhattan to downtown middle of nowhere, citing the town, the, the, the crossroads I grew up with, moving from downtown Manhattan to Poppy Center, New York, you know, it might sound good on paper, but is uh, more culture shock than most people can anticipate by doing their homework. Yeah. And it's also too, just such a bizarre time in our lives that things will be different anyway. Just. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I, no, there's no, I, there's no question that, that there are many things here that are going to be permanently different. I mean, just going back to where we were a few moments ago in the conversation, I, 
I anticipate my life moving forward 30% plus less travel. Really? Yeah. And that's, for me, that's going to be a good thing. So, yeah, is your family happy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they're happy, but I get to sleep in my own bed every night. I love that. <laughs> I, 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 my wife says she's happy. I, I don't know. She's not used to having me around this much. So I bet. I, I can only hope. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, there, there are going to be things that are going to be permanently changed, and that's going to be one of them. How about for someone like me who's a full-time regional major gift officer? What would you predict for something like that? Demand will only increase. I, I think there's going to be very, very significant demand in the marketplace. So I... I had a meeting last week. I've been asked to serve on a panel for one of our clients, big university, public university system in the Midwest. And I had been asked to serve on this panel several weeks ago before this happened. And the, the topic was going to be, how we want to grow our, our program very significantly and how are we going to get into this marketplace and really ratchet up our, uh, our talent here and you know, what's our methodology for doing that. Well, that, of course, morphed into what do we do now? And the panel was um, a, a vice president of chief advancement officer at another very, very, very productive public university. One of the, you know, case 50, big name, raises an enormous amount of money. And me, from the search uh, consultant perspective, and ironically, and, and he and I never spoke before this thing, and we, and we both said the same thing, double down and hire as quickly and as aggressively as you possibly can. Right now, don't worry where the money's coming from. Secure your talent right now, because when this comes back, it's going to come back in a torrent, and everybody's going to be looking, and you're going to be in a very, very, very highly competitive environment. Now, what's going to happen, I believe, is we're going to, uh, institutions are going to start to close. So you're going to start to see somewhere between 10 and 20% of the colleges and universities in this country close, merge, cease to exist, essentially. And just to clarify that, that's institutions that were already struggling. Correct. At least small places. Right. Exactly. So last week we saw Pine Manor College be absorbed by Boston College. Perfect example. So now that is going to release some people into this marketplace, but most of them are not working at highly productive institutions with enormously highly sophisticated and comprehensive programs. What it's going to do, I believe, is it's going to trickle up. People who are working in highly sophisticated, comprehensive programs, big campaigns, you know, really working at the productive leading edge of the profession, demand is going to be greater. And then the rest of the marketplace will, will fill you know, from the bottom up. So, so we'll um, get more competitive? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't know that searches are going to get more competitive at the top. Uh, I actually think what's going to happen is uh, you're going to see a, a huge growth in field officers. So basically, if you're at the top, you're going to be in higher demand. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and frankly, I also think it, it, if, if our last recession uh, was any indication, eventually when the crisis is over, and I believe this crisis will be over much, much more quickly than it was the last time, which is easy to say because the last time was five years, God help us. When people come to understand that their institutions are secure, it is a time when people will retire. These campaigns are going to end. They're going to make sure the institution is going to be okay and they're going to retire and move on and so on. So, so I, I believe that demand and advancement will continue to be extremely strong in some ways might be very much stronger.
we've talked about the mechanics of the search and how things have changed for you. Let's dive a little bit into the ethical aspect yeah. of leaving and searching and what that means right now for us. Is it right to leave your employer at this point in history? What are your thoughts? Yeah, and uh, you know, I guess I should disclaim that first of all, I'm not an ethicist. Uh, and, I'm treating and, you like one. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to duck the question. I'm just trying to put it in perspective. And, and, I, <laughs> and, and I obviously I have a dog in the hunt. I mean, I, right. I, I want the answer to this That's question right. to be yes. I mean, you know, I, that, it's important to me that the answer to this question is yes. So I'm not exactly I'm not exactly neutral in, in, in this judgment. But I think it depends a lot on the circumstances. Some of it, uh, Catherine, I think is simple. If you're in a job and people at your level of the organization are being laid off, then I think you can look for another job. I don't think the institution gets to tell you that, hey, I can lay off anybody I want, but I expect everyone else to stay. I don't think it works that way. You know, I think what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So for most people in middle management or top line positions, like a regional major gift fundraiser or a program manager or director, if you look around the institution, uh, people at that level are about to be furloughed. And uh, if you can furlough those people, those people can also look for another job. I think when you get up into the upper echelons of administration where people are leading the entire enterprise, where they have influence across the institution. So think of it vaguely as officers of the institution. Now I think you're in a little bit different circumstance. Now, now I think my client and I have a right to understand why it's okay for you to look to leave. And, and, and there's lots of good answers to that question. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, yeah. they're, they're highly individual. You know, the, the, the fact that there's COVID-19, doesn't change the fact that your boss is a jerk. It doesn't change the fact that your institution is a, a, a dysfunctional mess. It doesn't change the fact that your campaign ended and it's time for you to move on. It doesn't change those things. But I am looking for a little bit more reasonable rationale now than just, it's been six years, it's time for me to make my next move. It's, it's gonna, there's going to have to be more to it. We are in a in a fairly informal way, building those judgments into our conversations with candidates. So it's all about the story. It is. Well, first of all, it's always about the story. Any search is nothing but the building of a story. We, and we tell our clients this the whole time. You're going to build a narrative about this candidate, and it's going to start with a resume, and it's going to have a cover letter, and we're going to have screened them, and we're going to have interviewed them, and then you're going to interview them. And then we're going to do references and we're going to verify their degrees and their previous employment. And then we're going to do off list references. Sometimes we do psychometric assessments and those sorts of things. It's a narrative. It's a story and it all has to make sense. And the important part of any narrative is motivation. The candidates need to know why the job is open and the institution needs to know why it's okay for that candidate to be there. And that's what we try to do. Make sure the stories make sense. How do you encourage your clients to think about their story? I mean, they can't change it by the time they've met you, but I guess more for our younger listeners, what would you tell us? Yeah, this is what I like to tell younger people as you build a career. There are two ways that you build a career, okay? One is your resume should make sense. 
Now, the perfect thing is I read a resume and I can tell you exactly what happened, right? I can tell the entire story from the moment you graduate from college. I see the path that leads us to this juncture. And therefore, I understand why you think the next step is the one just above the title you have right now. And that all makes sense to me. Anytime you have a resume that has something on it that has to be explained, something that deviates from that path, then you have an issue because I may or may not ever give you a chance to explain it. Uh, I, the search consultant, or I, the hiring officer, you build a resume and you build a resume that the narrative of which is as understandable as possible. The problem with that, of course, is that for a lot of people means you don't take a lot of chances. It means that you just kind of have a plain vanilla. Right. I go to the next job. I never look at a different kind of institution, a different kind of job, a different sector of the economy. I never, I, I, I always see the next path. Mm -hmm. And and for me, that also meant that I found myself at one point in my life in a job where I discovered at one point that that job was not going to be any fun. And I was forced into a decision because I discovered that on Wednesday of the first week. And now I'm stuck. Do I make my resume look okay or not? Okay. Because the other way you build a career is you have a right to be happy almost every day. And so I was forced in this moment to choose between a job that I hated that would keep my resume intact and moving to a job that I thought that I would enjoy. And when I was 26 or seven years old, I chose the resume and I stayed in a job that I didn't like for almost four years. And at the end of that, I got the best job I've ever had. I am now. And we 16. just got two plot twists here. Right. So I sucked it up. And for four years, I worked for an institution I didn't much admire and in, in a job that I found extraordinarily distasteful. And at the end of those four years, I got a great job at a great place with people I loved and respected, and I had a wonderful time. And I was right. So that was the right decision oh, at that wow. time in my life. That was at 26. Switch the numbers. At 62, I get to be happy almost every day. So would you almost consider that putting in your time? Yep. Equivalent to that? Yeah. Okay. It's something we don't necessarily see a lot of to be frank, and I'm not holding myself up as an exemplar. I can tell you 30 other people who have done the same thing. But at mm -hmm. some point, you have to pay your dues. And at some point, you have to prove to me that you can suck it up and make the best out of a, a less than perfect circumstance. And if you do, that, that scores you a lot of points with me. Bottom line is do the right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, The right thing will in part be defined for you by what your institution considers to be the right thing. Well, regardless of whether you stay or you go, what would you consider exemplary work right now? And how, do you, how can you see that as a recruiter? This is an opportunity to be creative. The people who are being creative now, the people who are, uh, the, the people who are, uh, uh, who are expressing different ways of doing the job, the, the, the people who are challenging their institutions and their, and their colleagues to, to think differently, those people are going to be at a real premium. I anticipate we're going to see a fall off in giving 
so we're not going to be looking necessarily to. Yeah, you won't them. be able to compare last year to this year. No, no, but all right. So, so basically, I, I just think this is going to be a golden age of philanthropy. I, I think giving USA in a year will may very well show that more money was given away during this period rather than less. But it's it's different kind of giving. Colleges and universities uh, generate giving by convincing donors to teach a man to fish. Right now, we're in an environment where donors are going to give a man a fish. So right now, the, right now we got money going to food banks, we got money going to homeless shelters, we got money pouring into the economy in other ways. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm illustrative. My alma mater sent out a note a month ago saying that they were going to put X amount of money aside for kids in distress, students in distress uh, during this period, get them home, get them, get them homes, you know, that sort of thing. They were just going to make X amount of money available. No ask, no solicitation or anything. I sat down, wrote a check. Next thing I get two weeks later, they sent their usual note. They said, yeah, well, we raised two X for it. And, and, and that's with no solicitation. But that can happen pretty simply. So I actually, and that's why I think institutions should double down on hiring, because I think when this bounces back, it's going to bounce back huge. Because people are going to find out that they gave that money away and it didn't hurt. They're going to find out that yeah. they gave money away and it actually felt good. I mean, I got to tell you, Catherine, as horrible as this is, there's going to be some real good that comes of it. You know, I got a similar email about my college, and I'm sure everyone did, about the student relief funds that were created. Why do you think that is so compelling for us? I know that we all want to help people, but why did that, you know, spark you into giving? Well, I, I think a couple of things. Number one, not often do you get to give to a college or university and know that it goes directly to support a specific person. Now, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a scholarship donor and, you know, I get reports on scholarship funds and that sort of thing. And that feels really good. But look, I was a poor kid. You know, I grew up on a farm. I was a scholarship kid. I went to school on a free ride. I would never have gone to and not a college like that anyway. Uh, if it hadn't been for what other people did for me, I, I think this is this is fundraising 101. I mean, this is a, this, and I, I think I think this can be, as I've said before, literally a golden age of that if we make it so. Is it something around instant gratification? Sure. Yeah, we're yeah we're an instant gratification kind of society. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people want to help. People get this. Forget about what's happening in the body politic. Forget what's on Fox News and MSNBC. Forget that. At a human level, people get what's going on here and they're helping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun. We've come you didn't ask me the last question. The last question's coming, but before I do, I just want to ask if there's anything else, any other predictions or thoughts you have about the next year or so that, that you weren't able to share with us? Institutions are organisms with lots of moving parts. You are one of them. I think people have a right to make critical decisions here. I don't think it's, I don't think our institutions have a right to ask people to sacrifice themselves for the institution's existence. But I do think they have a right to expect loyalty from the people they have nurtured over the course of time. And I think that, uh, look to your mentors. Look to the people who advise you. Look to the people in your life who have the best judgment and who are known for doing the right thing and have them help you. You know, yeah, I, that I, didn't I, change, right? No, That's no, the same. I made a lot of decisions in my life that my mentor, a guy named Sarge Whittier at St. Lawrence, 
I'm sure would not have made, but he never disapproved of any of them. And if he did, I wouldn't have made them. Well, you've given us so much to think about, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been a real pleasure. I would love to end with my signature question. What do you know for sure, Dennis? I am pretty sure that uh, people who do the right thing will be rewarded, ultimately. And I am pretty sure that this COVID-19 thing is going to create very significant and permanent changes in American higher education, including in the hiring market. Just don't know what they are yet. But, uh, but we're looking at a brand new world. And I think if we all work hard enough, we can make that brand new world better than the old one. And I think we ought to be taking advantage of this opportunity to do so. Well, thank you. Catherine, this is a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I look forward to hearing it and uh, please give your family my love. I will, I will.